Good morning, everybody. My name is Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff and excited to open God's Word with you this morning in our ongoing study of the book of Genesis. If you're a guest with us this morning, or you're visiting with friends, or you're from the neighborhood, we're really, really glad that you're here, and we're glad that you're a guest. But I say it every week, we don't, we don't want anybody to stay a guest. That's not the long-term goal. We want you to feel like family. And it, it might be a little daunting, even if you're new, to feel like, oh my goodness, we're jumping in in Genesis 17, like I haven't heard the other stuff. The great news is, you could read Genesis 1 through 16 on your own any time. If you wanted to hear our teaching from this church on those previous chapters, that's all online. But there's also tons of great teaching on Genesis 1 through 16 on the internet. So you, you could, uh, there's all kinds of ways you could catch up. But for our purposes this morning, we're here at Genesis 17. Now, let me say this as we dive into the, the chapter here as well. Um, admittedly, Bambi did a great job, but this is a text that's got some kind of awkward stuff in it, right? And some of you might be feeling a little uncomfortable and you might be feeling a little funny. We don't, uh, as a matter of course in our culture, we don't, we don't talk a lot. I mean, unless you're a doctor or something, we don't talk a lot about foreskins or circumcision. Like that's not like a regular thing. And, and here's what can happen. If we feel weird about it and we feel uncomfortable, that's okay. But what can happen is we, we get so uncomfortable or awkward that we miss the bigger picture of what God's trying to say in Genesis 17. So, you know, I just want to let you off the hook. It's fine that it feels a little uncomfortable, but don't let that distract you from the bigger picture of what God's doing and what God's saying here. Don't let the, I mean, if you need to giggle a little bit, you can, even Abram, he laughs in this text. So if you need to giggle, it's fine, but let's not lose the, the, the broader picture for the sake of the uncomfortability of it. No pun intended, right? So here in Genesis 17, uh, we see the story continue, and it's interesting that, that the writer, uh, Moses, he gives us uh, the age of Abram, right? He tells us right out of the gate that Abram was 99 when we get to uh, Genesis 17. That's an important note. You don't want to skip over it. You don't want to skip it because what that tells us is that 13 years have passed between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. Uh, when, I, when I was a younger man and I would look at this text, I always just kind of assumed you read Genesis 16 and in Genesis 16, there is uh, Abram having this uh, sort of inappropriate uh, relationship with Hagar, his servant girl. He gets her pregnant. And then I thought, well, you know, we get to 17 and God's like, oh, you're going to impregnate your servant. Guess what? I got a sign of a covenant for you. Hope you got a knife ready. You know, that it was like almost retribution, right? That God went like, don't sleep with your servant. And now circumcision is going to be the deal. Like uh, that circumcision in this case becomes like a consequence or a punishment. That isn't the case uh, specifically, and we'll talk about that to some degree, but understand 17 doesn't come right after 16. And in fact, if you go back to 16, or if you were with us in the study last week, there are some things in 16 that should make you feel uncomfortable. It should make you feel uncomfortable that Sarai offers her servant girl to her husband. He doesn't argue about that at all. He has sex with his servant girl. And then his wife treats the servant girl bad when she gets pregnant. And he doesn't do anything about it. There's all kinds of things in 16 that for me, I would like to hear God be like, hey, quit being a jerk, right? Like knock it off. And that doesn't really happen. In fact, in 16, we don't see, uh, we don't see Abram punished or even sort of reprimanded in 16 at all. The point of 16, as I I thought was very clearly articulated last week, and you don't want to miss this, is that God heard Hagar in her affliction, that he was present with her, that he blessed her, that that he made promises, that he does not abandon us in the midst of what's going on. But by the time we get to 17, 13 years have passed. Well, that's important because you want to recognize that in 13 years, it's entirely possible that at this point, Abram 
has kind of gotten comfortable with his son Ishmael. Ishmael would be 13 years old at this point, right? That there is a portion of Abram's heart and mind who might be thinking, you know what? God made a promise that I would have a son. God made a promise that I would be the father of generations to come. And you know what? God should thank me because I made that happen for him, right? He didn't seem to know what he was doing. He didn't seem to be accomplishing the purpose. Sarah and I were getting worried about it. And so we hatched up our own scheme. We came up with the Ishmael plan. And I got to be honest, after 13 years, the Ishmael plan seems to be working fairly well, right? The reason why I make this point is that there are times in our lives where we make selfish decisions, where we make decisions that are not decisions that would have been given to us or handed down by God, and in some cases are contradictory to the heart and spirit of God. But we make these decisions because we seem wise in our own eyes, because it makes sense to us, because we feel desperate, because we feel like we got to take things into our own hands. And if there isn't immediate consequence to that, then sometimes we settle back and go, I'm pretty good at, uh, you know, getting God off the hook. I'm pretty good at at coming up with my Ishmael plan. And I think, you know what? I I am the one who figured out a way for God's promises to be fulfilled. By the time we get to Genesis 17, I think Abraham has settled into a mindset that goes like, you're welcome, God, I solved this. And you and I want to be really careful that we don't get to a place where we're living in, uh, in sort of the wisdom of our own mind or that we're living in our flesh, that we're doing things according to our own uh, designs and, and sort of ignoring the purposes of God or the character of God. So 13 years have passed. Uh, Abram's 99 and God comes. And we're going to look at this chapter in kind of three movements. But God comes to him and at first... Uh, what God is doing here is he's reaffirming and sort of restating uh, the covenant that he's already made. In fact, we've seen the covenant articulated in a couple of other places, but God reaffirms and restates the covenant. But not only that, he, he expands it to some degree. So there's a bit of an expansion. Let's just look at that here. It says in verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty walk before me and be blameless. So I want to point out a couple of things. This, uh, this name for God that he himself gives us in Genesis 17, the first time it's used is uh, the name El Shaddai, which you may have heard before. It does mean God Almighty, but the, the, the sentiment or the tone of that, El Shaddai, God Almighty, is not just God the powerful or God uh, the, the, the mighty. The idea of his almightiness that's rooted in El Shaddai is the idea of provision or sustenance. He is the one who will provide. He is the one from which we find our nourishment and our sustenance. His almightiness is a provisionary almightiness. Does that make sense? So he says, this is who I am. And then he goes on to say to Abram, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. I, I love this, right? I love this idea of walking before him. And it ties in even with some things that Christina was saying to us earlier. I think sometimes we can have this mindset that is uh, our, our faith or our relationship with God is a one and done kind of thing. You know, maybe you heard the gospel at a Billy Graham crusade or your mom sat down with you in the back seat of the station wagon and she explained that Jesus died and rose again and you put your faith in Christ and, and you became a Christian. And for some people, you think of that conversion experience as the sum total of all your relationship with God all encapsulated in a moment. But that isn't the heart of God, and it isn't really what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that our relationship with God is a thing that can be defined by one conversion experience that happened 20 years ago or 70 years ago. Our relationship with God is meant to be a journey. Uh, What Christina was talking about earlier with regard to the Holy Spirit, where we say, you know, we all believe that at the moment we put our faith in Christ, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 
But that doesn't mean that there isn't a call for us to walk in step with the Spirit in an ongoing way. We are filled with the Spirit, but there's a path we're on. There's a journey we're on, right? There's a progressive experience that God acknowledges all the way back here in Genesis 17. He looks at Abraham and he says, I am God Almighty. I am your provider. I want you to walk with me. And the sentiment of that is we're on a journey together. I mean, it it might occur to you to even ask the question, why, if God is going to instate circumcision, right? If he's going to make this the sign of the covenant, why didn't he do that from the beginning? When he first called Abram out of the place he was, why didn't he say then, like, hey, just so you know, it's going to get a little tricky down the road, right? It's going to be painful. There's going to be some sacrifice coming. Why doesn't he, did, did he just come up with this? No. God didn't just come up with the idea of circumcision as a sign of the covenant. He didn't just come up with this idea. Well, what's happening? Well, God is revealing himself in a progressive way on the path. Right? As Abram grows and as Abram makes some choices, and some of his choices are good and some of his choices are bad, some of them are faithful and some of them are faithless, some of them care about others and some of them absolutely disregard others, God is meeting Abram in the walk and revealing himself in increasing measure, right? So the timing of God's appointment of the sign of circumcision is perfect, but it wouldn't have made as much sense earlier in the journey. Why, why does this matter? Well, If you're sitting here today and you feel like you know everything you need to know about God right where you sit, you've completely misunderstood the way discipleship works, right? None of us, none of us are a place where we can pat ourselves on the back and go, I put my faith in Christ. I know a couple things about him. I know what the theological statement of this church is and I agree with it. And so one and done, I'm finished. No, no, no. I'm on a path and so are you. I'm on a journey and the expectation is that God is going to reveal himself to me in increasing measure through his word, through my interaction with him, through community, right? Ephesians talks about the the ways in which we increasingly understand the unknowable love of God together. No, he says, walk before me. And the idea there is of progression. The idea is of a pathway, of a journey. We're on a journey together. And if you have a sense of self-satisfaction in your understanding of God or in your knowledge of him or whatever else, I would say turn loose of that and walk the path and watch the ways in which he's going to show himself to you fresh, right? Walk the path and watch the ways he's going to show himself to you fresh. That's important. It's an important part of what we're doing here, right? that we're on a journey together with God. Now, he doesn't just say walk before me. He says walk before me and be blameless. And the idea of blamelessness here is not of perfection. We understand even from looking at Abram's story, he's not a perfect guy. He's not going to be a perfect guy. And neither are any of us going to be perfect. We're never going to get it right. We're broken. We're sinners. We make mistakes. We have moments of real clarity and compassion. And we have moments of real selfishness and pain, right? The idea here is not of blamelessness speaking to perfection, but the idea of blamelessness here, as it's understood in the original language, is of wholeness. Wholeness. What's that? Well, how how do you walk with God in wholeness? The idea there is is that you be honest about the good and the bad. That you be open and honest about the things you understand and the things you don't. That you be open and honest about the moments where you've walked forward in faith and you've left your homeland and you've gone to a land that God will show you. But then you're also honest about the times when your wife said to you, hey, why don't you sleep with my servant? And you were like, okay, right? That you own the whole thing. That you walk in honesty and openness. The whole of what God is doing and revealing in and through you is is acknowledged, right? He says, I want you to walk before me in blamelessness. That's integrity, wholeness. and And I want this to be a pathway. And then he goes on to confirm some things. So he says, I'm the provider. I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. 
Then Abram fell on his face. I like that response. There's a, there's a worshipful, reverent response from Abram. Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, so he reaffirms and restates some things he's already said, but he also expands upon that. So let's think about the ways in which he's expanded. He expands upon it by saying, this isn't just a covenant that's between me and you. This isn't just about Abram living in a land that I'm going to give to Abram and his direct descendants. What he says is, this is a covenant I'm making with your descendants forever. I'm giving you this land forever, right? So he expands the original covenant. He doesn't change it, but he broadens it so that Abram will understand this isn't just an agreement that God is making with him individually, but it's an agreement that God is making with him to bless the peoples of the earth in perpetuity, that it will go on and on and on. He's wanting to lift Abram's eyes off of his own infertility or his own problems, to lift his eyes and go, I have a plan for future generations that comes to this covenant, right? He not only expands it into an everlasting covenant, but he also bronze it to say, there will be kings and multiple nations. So there's a sense of power. There's a sense of royalty, prestige that comes. That's an expansion of the covenant. He goes so far, and here we see the sovereignty of God on display. He goes so far as to change Abram's name. Now, Abram means uh, honored father and was likely a reference to his own father, Terah. He expands Abram's name from honored father to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes or the father of many, right? Which, by the way, remember, uh, Abram at this point has one kid named Ishmael who's 13 years old. So it's kind of insulting. It would be like if... uh, it would be like if God came to me in a dream and said, hey, Darren, I'm going to change your name to Goldilocks, right? It's hurtful because I'm so bald, right? I, my hair is neither golden nor long and luxurious. It's, it's non-existent practically, right? So if I came to you all next week and said, hey, God told me in a dream that I'm supposed to be called Goldilocks, you'd be like, God doesn't even make sense. You don't have hair, bro, right? When, God, when Abram goes back to his friends and relatives and his servants and the people in his household and he says to them, God wants me to be called the father of many people, the father of many nations, you can imagine the response from people who are like, you know you got one kid, right? Right? What's, what's God doing? He's going, I want you to look beyond yourself. I want you to look beyond your current circumstance. I want you to look beyond your little Ishmael plan and I want you to see my plan, right? So God reaffirms, he restates the covenant and he expands it right? To the multitude of nations. He changes his name. He talks about fruitfulness. He talks about royalty. He makes the covenant everlasting, even in the land, beyond the scope of his life. And there are all these incredible promises, but I want you to note that in the reaffirmation of it, the most important piece, it's not the land, it's not the royalty, it's not the new name. The most important piece of this covenant is is right there when it says, I will be your God, right? I will be your God. Verse 8, You'll have the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. All of that other stuff flows out of that promise. The covenant, the piece of the covenant that matters is that God is going to be their sovereign leader and they will be his people. All the rest of it flows out of that. So he reaffirms the covenant. Now, 
I imagine that if you're Abram and you've been thinking about your life for 13 years, you've got this Ishmael, it feels like things are going okay, you know, you feel like you did a good job of shoring up God's initial sort of messed up promise, right? That now God comes to you and he says, hey, I just want to remind you, this isn't a covenant just for you, it's a covenant for generations, an everlasting covenant through your descendants to have this land, to rule, this is what I'm going to do. That there's probably a sense of like excitement, right? There's probably a sense of like, this is awesome. This, this covenant is actually bigger and better than I initially understood. Like, so cool. And then in the second movement of the chapter, God goes on to tell him the sign of the covenant, right? Which is may, maybe a little bit of a hiccup in what Abram was thinking. It says in verse 9, God said to Abram, it said to Abraham, sorry, now his name is different. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, if you're Abram or Abraham and you're thinking like, God just expanded my understanding, right? There's going to be kingdoms and land and everlasting covenant to all generations, right? This is so cool. And then he goes, by the way, the sign of the covenant is going to be you need to cut off a a part of, of yourself that is intensely painful and private, right? Don't you think at that point you're kind of like, couldn't we have just had like club jackets or something. I don't know. Like, uh, we could all wear matching hats. How about that? We'll get a patch and we'll sew it on our vest. Like there's gotta be a better way to do this. I think I've, so I've told some of you that, um, when I was a freshman in high school, I, um, I changed school. So I'd been at one school growing up or a couple of different ones, but I, I went to public school for the first time and I didn't really know anybody at my high school as a freshman. And I think my English teacher kind of knew that I was struggling to make friends and so he says, hey, I'm the, I'm the coach of the freshman wrestling team, and you should come out for the wrestling team because you'll get to train, you'll get in shape, we'll teach you some stuff. But most importantly, you'll make a bunch of friends, and it's a great way to build camaraderie. You get connected in the school. It's like, he's like, and I'm the coach, so I can guarantee you a spot on the team. And uh, so I was struggling to get to know people, so I went out for the wrestling team, and he put me on the team. And you guys, it was great for like two months. I... Uh, we were jogging every morning. I lost a ton of weight. They were teaching me all these holds and all these moves. I was learning about wrestling. Like, I made all these friends. I liked the coaches. Like, I just felt like, man, I got some people, you know? And then I remember uh, the day before the first meet. So on Friday, the last day of school before our meet, which was going to be on Saturday, was the day they hand out the uniforms. And so they got us all lined up, you know, uh, alphabetical or whatever. And, uh, the coach pulls the box out with all the uniforms in them. And then he calls the first guy in the line uh, and he says, okay, come up and get your uniform. And he reaches into the box. And it's actually, it's, it's kind of at the time I thought it's actually a pretty funny joke. He reaches into the box and he pulls out, uh, you've seen these before. It's like a, it's like a one piece lady swimsuit, right? You know, uh, it's basically, it's kind of a floppy sort of spandex thing in a, and I think to myself at the time, like, that's pretty funny. Like, the good one, coach. You know, like, well, that's great. But the dude, at the end of the line, he goes up and he takes the lady's swimsuit and he just goes back into the line, right? And then the coach calls the second guy up to get his uniform. And, you know, I mean, it's funny once, but twice he pulls out another one. And people don't laugh. There's, like, nobody laughing. 
And I'm thinking, it is kind of funny, but not like, it's not going to stay funny. You know, like he should have, maybe the second thing he handed out should have been like a, you know, like a gorilla suit or something else silly. But one after another, these guys are going up there to get these ladies swimsuits. And I, I finally look at the guy next to me and I was like, well, I don't get the joke. Like, is this an initiation thing or what's going on? And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, why are they all getting ladies swimsuits? And he goes, bro, that's a singlet. Just like that. And I was like, a singlet is a lady swimsuit. <laughs> and, uh, and I never, I never wrestled again. I was off the team. That was the end. I walked out. I walked out. I never was in a meet or a match for my team. I only trained for the two months prior to our season. And then I quit because, uh, the singlet was a deal breaker for me. Right. I'm like, if that's what it's going to take for us to find solidarity, then I get, it turns out I didn't know this, but I'm not a wrestler. So there you go right now. I know that there are some of you sitting in here who are wrestlers and this story makes you mad, you know, and you're like, don't dishonor the singlet. Listen, if you want to feel better about yourself, come up here afterwards and put me in a headlock. It won't be hard, right? I will submit to it. You can feel better about yourself and we'll be done, right? God looks at Abram or Abraham and he says, hey, I've made this covenant with you. I want you to understand this isn't a bargain, right? So God isn't saying, I'm going to do my part. Now you do your part. That's not what this is. Remember the study we were in two weeks ago in Genesis 15. The covenant of God is not an exchange, right? There is no tit for tat. It's not, uh, it, it's not a quid pro quo. God does his thing when we do ours. This isn't God saying, now here's your part. You get circumcised. This is God saying, there is an external sign to the inward work that I am going to do in and of my own power, right? There's an external sign that is a a demonstration of your understanding, a demonstration of your commitment, a demonstration of the fact that I'm more than just your sovereign God in name, but I'm your sovereign God in action, right? It's one thing to say we have a master. It's another thing entirely to live like we have a master, What we see in the covenant sign of circumcision is that it is an outward demonstration of inward faith. Romans 4 makes that really clear, even about Abraham. In Romans 4, verses 11 and 12, it says, speaking about Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Does that make sense? It's a seal or a sign of his faith. Nothing is gained through the circumcision, right? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who, walk, uh, who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what's, what's Paul saying to us in Romans? He's saying that the key thing here is not the circumcision, it's the faith, right? It's the trust and the confidence in the sovereignty of God and in his covenant, that he's a promise-keeping God who walks through the middle of the cut animals by himself. This isn't a bargain. It's not, hey, you've got to do your part if I'm going to do my part. This is God saying this is an outward sign of an inward thing. It's very similar to what we're doing in baptism this afternoon. We've got baptisms out on the plaza at 5 o'clock. There is nothing spiritually that is gained through baptism. There is nothing spiritually that Abraham gets that he doesn't already have. In essence, what, what circumcision is, is an admission. God says, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. And circumcision is, in essence, a sign going, well, I, I don't have anything to do, but I'm trusting that you will do what you're going to do. Right? Circumcision, it's a, it's a fitting sign. Now, at the time, 
Uh, when God initiates this, he didn't come up with it, right? So this isn't, circumcision wasn't unique to the Jewish people and isn't still. Uh, there were other people during the time period that lived during Abraham, even the Egyptians uh, practiced circumcision. So it wasn't something that was new. What's new about God's, God's call here, God's, uh, God's expectation, is that he includes babies. So he goes, hey, you're going to have, your, your male children, when they're eight days old, will be circumcised. That was not common practice. So we have to stop and go, what's the, why does he make that difference? Well, what God's trying to show here is that, again, this isn't just a covenant with Abraham, and it's not just about his Ishmael plan, right? That this is a covenant with all people. So what do we see? In the covenant of circumcision, we see a diversity of age and status and experience all bound together in one sign. All bound together in one sign. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, or how you ended up in, uh, in Abram's a household, or we might use the Greek word oikos. We talk about circles around here. It doesn't matter how you ended up in Abraham's sphere. If you're in Abraham's sphere, the covenant passes to you through him. God has a covenant with Abram, and, and so it draws everyone in. The, the thing that's new about this in the culture is that it includes children, right? It includes everyone. This is to be for generations to come, right? It's a demonstration of commitment. It's a demonstration of sacrifice, solidarity. There's certainly vulnerability and trust involved in this. But circumcision is a fitting sign, mostly because it points to future generations. What's God trying to do? God's trying to lift uh, Abraham's eyes away from him and his current predicament. He's trying to lift Abraham's eyes away from his own infertility or whatever else. And he's trying to go, this covenant I'm making with you isn't just about you and your wife and your handmaiden. It's a thing I'm doing with people forever. So what he does is he initiates the sign of circumcision because because in procreation, what we're thinking about is the future, right? Why circumcision and and not just a club jacket or a fancy hat or a patch on a vest? Or why not just a tattoo or chop off a finger or something else? It's connected to procreation because he wants to lift Abraham's eyes up and say, I want you to think about the future. This covenant is not just with you. It's a covenant for the future right? He's just expanded it to be an eternal covenant. That God is beginning a thing with Abraham that will find its fulfillment in Christ and that will go on to be the reason that we've gathered this morning. The development of a people, his church, right? The cutting away of the flesh is, this, is the setting aside of his plan and his strength. Philippians, it's interesting, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, we hear in the New Testament that, that circumcision came to mean the exact opposite of what God intended. So what God intended was, hey, don't put any confidence in your own flesh. And you can demonstrate that through circumcision. But by the time we get to the New Testament, there are all these people who have started treating circumcision like a thing you do to prove how faithful you are, right? So in Philippians 3, 2 and 3, it says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The point of circumcision originally was an outward sign of no confidence in my own Ishmael plan. No confidence in my own flesh. No confidence in my own purposes for the future. It was always about no confidence in the flesh. But there were religious people by the time we get to the first century who had even made circumcision about doing it in my own strength, right? That's what Paul argues against again and again. The idea here is that we're looking ahead to the future, the cutting away of my plan, the cutting away of my strength. So let's come to the, to the next or the last movement here. It says, um, back to Genesis chapter 17, God, God says, this, is, this will be the sign of the covenant. And then 
and then look at the response. It's very interesting. It says in verse 15, um, God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. That shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. It's a very interesting thing for God to say about Sarah, right? That kings of nations will come from her. Uh, It's entirely possible in the course of this chapter to feel, especially if you're a woman in the room, to feel like, oh, this is just about dudes, right? This is like a chapter for dudes. Dudes have to deal with it. They got to figure it out. This is a thing for men. Uh, Don't miss ladies in the room and men in the room. Don't miss. This isn't a chapter about guys. God sees Sarah in the midst of this, right? He's blessing her. He's got a covenant with her, right? Through, through the connection with Abram. He has a plan to make kings and nations through Sarah. That's important. He says, I will change her name. Uh, 16, I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So here is doubt, right? We hear his lack of confidence in God's plan, God's promise. Like, is it like, really, you're, you're going to keep saying this to me? You know, I'm an old man. And then he goes one step further. Verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is an interesting moment. God, God has said to Abraham, I am going to bless you and your wife. I'm going to do all these things. Here's the sign of my covenant. And Abraham looks at God and says, uh, yeah, I, I hear you. But here's the thing. I don't, I don't know if you noticed, but I have a plan. It's called my Ishmael plan. And uh, Hagar had a son. He's my son, right? That's legit. He's 13. He's learning how to ride a horse. He's learning how to work the field. He's very cool. He's got a great group of friends. He's got some career plans, whatever. Like, why don't we just use him? Why don't we just use my Ishmael plan? Abraham looks at God and says, I hear your plan. But I just want you to know, like, I, I've come up with a better way. I've come up with an easier way. Like, this is just, a, like, it's already done. I already did it. It's right here. Like, we don't have to do all this other stuff. You don't have to make promises about 99-year-old men having babies. You don't have to make promises about Sarah having a child. We don't, we don't need to do that because I got my Ishmael plan. How about we do my Ishmael plan? I don't want you to miss here that not only is this uh, Abraham being settled into his own strength and his own flesh and his own ability to work things out his way, but this is an absolute and clear dismissal of his wife. God has just said her name's not going to be Sarah. It's going to be Sarah. And I will bless her and I will make people come from her. I will make nations come from her. And he's like, I I, I don't know. How about if we just don't worry about Sarah at all? Because, you know, I already have this son. What Abraham's suggesting is that, that they set Sarah aside, which God has just said he will not do. So I love how emphatic God follows that up. Abram goes, how about we do my plan? My plan's pretty good. Let's just do my plans easier. And look at God's response. Look at verse 19. God said, no. No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. I like that he calls her Sarah, his wife. Like, you knucklehead, you remember you have a wife, you dummy? Like, you're going to, like, my promise will be fulfilled in the way I plan, not the way you plan. No, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means uh, he laughed. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. 
And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. I like the fact that he gets to the end of He's like, we're not talking about this anymore. Later, right? God says, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael. It's not going to be your plan. It's my plan through your wife, Sarah. Remember her, right? And that'll happen by this time next year. I'm out of here, right? He drops the mic and leaves. There's no more time for dialogue. Now, I'll also say uh, two, two things. I love the grace with which God, and this ties with what Jeff said last week. I love the grace with which God treats Ishmael and Hagar. Abram says, can we use Ishmael? And God says, no, but God does say, I hear you and I will bless, I will bless Ishmael, right? That says something about the grace and the provision of God. El Shaddai, Almighty, right? I also love the fact that, that when God departs, the next thing it says in the text, and we don't even have to read all of this, but what it says next in 22, well, no, even in, yeah, in 22, when he had finished talking, God went up from Abraham, 23, then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him to do. So, so I, I do want to give Abraham credit, because even though there's this back and forth, and even though there are some things that are cringeworthy in the text here, Abraham does what God tells him to do. There is a point in Genesis 17 where Abraham goes, not my plan, God's plan, not my strength, not my flesh. The cutting away of his own strength, the cutting away of his own flesh as he looks to the future of what God will do through him is the point of this whole thing, right? Abram has these doubts. God says, no, it will be my way and not yours. There are many times, and here's, here's some of the application for us today. There are many times in our lives where I think we get bogged down because we're arguing with God about doing our Ishmael plans. You know what I'm talking about? Like you got some scheme that makes total sense to you. You got a thing that, that works just great. You got it all figured out and you spend a lot of time going, God, let's do my thing. Let's do my thing. I got a thing right here. It's easy. Like the thing you want me to do, you want me to be, you know, sacrificial. You want me loving. You want me to care for widows and the poor. You want, you want me to live a life of holiness. You want me to walk before you and be whole, be blameless. Like I, I get that that's what you want, but how about this thing? How about I just memorize a bunch of Bible verses? How about that? That's my Ishmael plan, right? Or how about I just maintain sort of a religious attitude, but I don't live a, a sacrificial life. We're putting these plans up in front of God and we get bogged down because we, we think he's going to do our thing. And what he's saying to us is cut that off. Cut it off, right? Turn away from your own strength. Turn away from your own flesh. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 and following, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It doesn't want our plan. It doesn't mean we can't make good choices. It doesn't mean we aren't supposed to be discerning, but it means we're supposed to be obedient to God's plan. Why? Because God gets the glory and his plan enacted in us, and his plan is better than our plan. The Ishmael plan is not God's plan. And so God doesn't waste any more time arguing with him about that. God finishes, Abraham obeys. This, this chapter shows us again and again the sovereignty of God, that God has power, not, not only what Abraham will do, but even who Abraham is. He, he has the power to change Abraham's name. I want to talk about the sovereignty of God. God is in control. He renames, he commands, he corrects, and he guides. His people must hear and obey. Abraham's faith is what provoked obedience to a difficult sacrifice. And we are called to be a people who live a life of obedience to God and turn away from our own strength, turn away from our own Ishmael plans. I'll finish with this in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and following, it's speaking about our relationship with Christ. 
And it says, for in him, that's Jesus, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The one, uh, in essence, who has the ability to dictate where you go and what you do and how you do it. That has the one, the, the one who can change your name to whatever he wants to change it to, right? In him also, verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who has the power, church? Jesus. Whose plan is the one that makes sense? Jesus. You and I can look at Genesis 17 and recognize that this God of covenant invites us to live a life of obedience, an outward demonstration of an inward transformation that is all about what he does and in some ways kind of about our inability to do any of it ourselves, right? That we cut off our own strength, we cut off our own flesh, and we look to the future of what God will do by his strength and by his power, right? That's what we see in this text. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I think um, there is room for all of us in the place to be thinking about our Ishmael plans. And they, they likely don't have anything to do with sons or daughters. They likely don't have anything to do with handmaidens or uh, extramarital affairs or whatever. Our Ishmael plans probably are a lot, a lot more uh, mundane than that. But these places where we continue to look at you and say, I got an idea, let's do it my way. God, would you show us that you are the one who is working, that your plan is the one that is right, that it is your strength that will be victorious, that it is your strength and your victory that have delivered us, and that it is your strength and your power and your grace and goodness that will continue to deliver us in an ongoing way as we walk this path before you in wholeness. Thank you that you are El Shaddai, God Almighty, sustainer, provider, that I don't have to come up with my own plan because I can be sustained by your powerful arm. Help us all to understand that and to turn away from our Ishmael plans today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.